Hello everyone, it's September 3rd, 2019. This week, Starhopper hopped to its highest height yet, and we got a quick update on the Mars Insight mole problem. I promise you, it's not boring. Okay, that was bad, but the show is good, so let's do that and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 226 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Ben is sick. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're going to power through it. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had our RPG a couple of days ago. That was a blast. Yeah. I'm glad you guys liked it. Yeah, so the the, the problem with that episode that we did was I, I wrote the basic ideas months ago and then only just finished it up in the week before. And the final battle I wrote right before we started. <laughs> so, well, I think it played out great. We were... Things got a little hairy at the end. I was at one point thinking I was toast. You know? We, uh, I, I had a bunch more bad guys in in the final chamber. You guys were so ragged that I I was deleting them furiously before you know we pulled away the fog of war. Much appreciated. Yeah. Well, I d- didn't want to kill you guys off. Um. So the the game that we were playing was uh, we we switched over to a new game system called Rhesus. Um, but the, we're still playing in the same universe, the same story, which is basically like a Star Trek ripoff, really low quality Star Trek. So in this episode, we uh, hopped into the holodeck and had a Western adventure, but our holodeck was really low budget. And one of the things that one of the little bits of flavor text is that uh, the auto relifer software had expired or something. So if you died, (laughs) I don't know if you guys interpreted this way, but our intention was if you died in the simulation, you died in real life and and definitely a gruesome death outside of the outside of the simulation because it's uh yeah well we should clarify that what you mean by simulation, right? Because I don't know if you explained it. Yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't a holodeck. It was uh, horrible, poorly maintained matrix matrix chairs that hurt very much yeah i was anticipating matrix matrix rules while we were in there so yeah it it, it didn't come up but i'm, I'm glad that was the <laughs> the understanding um but yeah so uh we try to do these um once a quarter for our five dollar net patreon supporters um i think we have like 70 something patreon supporters so i'm glad that not everybody joined in at once but we always have room for more and these games are super easy there's uh there's like a little bit of a learning curve, but it's definitely something that you can, you know, read the rules through once and then jump in the game and you'll be fine. Uh, and we'll, we'll help you out and help you make those decisions. And this also was the first time we've been using racist. So everybody was in that learning curve and it, it still worked out just fine. And I got to say, I, I don't do these too often. In fact, this is really the only kind of RPG playing that isn't like a video game that I do. But Ben, you and Richard Durden, like do such a wonderful job oh thank you so rich richard really makes me look good um (laughs) he he does a huge amount of work um he's always feeding me suggestions if i'm faltering but i'm I'm glad we work well as a team it's kind of like doing like a stage play where you need somebody behind the scenes you know like having to pull the ropes and do whatever (laughs) at least if you're doing it online well we could we could do it with more imagination for sure and just have one person do it but it's really nice to just have stuff work sometimes you know Mm mm-hmm yeah. Let's move on then to this week in Spaceflight History. And we have a couple winners. And what was that clue again? Uh, the clue was, you know, it might have killed Swigert. 
And yeah, so we have a 50% success rate. We had four total guesses and only two correct guesses. So that means it's a good clue. Um, although in this case, it's a good clue by not being a very helpful clue. Um, <laughs> so our winners this week are Jason Friesen and Chubby Turkosi. Congrats, you two. This week in Spaceflight History is the 7th of September, 1914. It was the birth of James Van Allen. So he's a, a famous scientist who... Um, has some very important discoveries that affect human spaceflight. So uh, he he initially tried to enter the U.S. Naval Academy after high school, um, but failed the medical. Um, so he ended up going and getting a B.S. in physics from Iowa Wesleyan College. And he did this really cool thing where he assisted a professor who actually ended up going on the Bird Antarctic Expedition. And so he built some scientific instruments. Uh, for, oh, th this is the second Bird Expedition. And he was actually invited to go along, uh, but his parents uh, told him not to. And huh. so, you know, if you're familiar with Antarctic expeditions, like, yeah, James Van Allen was uh, influential. And while he was at Iowa Wesleyan, he was given um, this extra sensitive field magnetometer that was on loan from another institution. And he was put in charge of checking the device out, you know, and validating that it was good to go. And he ended up mapping a, a county in Iowa, Henry County. And that data was actually used by the geographical survey. But it kind of started this uh, lifelong fascination with magnets. He went and got an MS. So that's, that's his BS in physics. So then he went and got an MS in physics from the State University of Iowa. He did it in a single year. Um, then he went and got a PhD in nuclear physics from the Carnegie Institute. Um, which now is mostly called the Carnegie Institute of Science. And after he got his PhD, he actually got his wish and he was able to go into uh, the Navy. He was commissioned as an assistant staff gunnery officer and he served 16 months uh, in the Pacific during World War II. After he left the Navy, he became a researcher at the Applied Science Laboratory. He actually ended up designing the Aerobee rocket, if you're familiar with that one. Um, and he was the chairman of a research panel that used V2s to study the upper atmosphere. And it had a bunch of different names, so I'm not even going to mention one of them. Then he became the head of the physics and astronomy department at the University of Iowa. And while he was there, he got, uh, he got to continue his uh, rocket research. And so they started out by launching rockets from the ground. And then he designed some raccoons, some, some rockets that hang from balloons. Um, and Iowa was like, heck no, you're not launching those in our state. Um, so he uh, was lucky enough to get on a ship that uh, was actually headed up towards the Arctic. Um, and he was able to launch them, you know, into the ocean, basically. And there's this kind of this famous story where he had two that failed. The balloons ascended and then the rockets never ignited. And he decided that what happened was it was so cold, especially in the upper atmosphere, um, that their um, timing circuits froze over there. I believe they're actually mechanical. So uh, the part of the story that, that might trigger your memory is he actually heated up cans of orange juice that he found on the ship and packed them in the timing mechanism and then, you know, wrapped the whole thing in a blanket or something and, and mm. they were able to mm -hmm. successfully launch. Um, he also was a significant contributor to the International Geophysical Year. Um, he actually like did a major amount of the planning and, and he was uh, also instrumental to launching Explorer 1, which launched at the end of IGY. And in fact, one of the instruments, the Geiger-Muller tube, uh, he contributed the, the instrument. So, so Explorer 1 and Explorer 3 um, are particularly important because they provided the data that allowed Van Allen to discover these radiation belts around the Earth. Well, at least the first one. 
um, because there are, there are two nested and then sometimes a third even shows up. But he collected the data that showed that, you know, this first Van Allen belt was sitting out there. Um, and then when Pioneer 3 launched, so Pioneer 3 was supposed to go to the moon. It failed to actually get to the moon, but it did have magnetometers on board that allowed Van Allen to discover that second belt, the big uh, stretched out one. And, you know, of course, these Van Allen belts are obstacles to human human space exploration. Um, so the clue, uh, you know, it might have killed Swigert. So Swigert died of cancer. We're pretty sure that the radiation from the belts wasn't what caused that cancer because they actually did a lot of work to make sure they avoided the Van Allen belts. And they actually used orbits that in particular would, would keep them out of the worst of the radiation as long as possible. So, you know, that that's the big contribution to science that everybody recognizes Van Allen for. He was also the president of the AGU, the American Geophysical Union. You know, he has all these accomplishments here and there, but I think the the real thing that people remember him for is just how much he loved science. And, you know, all of the graduate students and doctorate students and, you know, undergraduate students that he inspired and, and helped on their way. I read somewhere um, a list of his graduate students' accomplishments or his, his PhD students' accomplishments um, and, you know, all the, the Nobel Prizes, and, you know, all these things that, that flowed out of this man. And he, he was also known uh, not only for his love of teaching, but also for his uh, assistance to other scientists. He didn't care, you know, if he was recognized as as a contributor. He just wanted people to do science and to learn things. So, so like, I think one of my favorite things is that for years he taught the general astronomy class uh, at his school, and it's just like the <laughs> the lowest level class that anybody can get into. And he would spend hours preparing for this class because he just loved teaching and he loved uh, learning and he loved science and and yeah o overall I, I think he was just a, a fantastic human being he is an impressive human being and i'm just glad that the van allen belts are called the van allen belts i think it's a cool name mm -hmm. i'm glad that his name wasn't like you know like jenkins <laughs> or something because <laughs> van yeah. allen sounds sciencey when you have a yeah. van in front of it yep. and so what is the clue for next week all right next week in 1962 the clue is cloud-based navigation this is a cool one 1962 cloud-based navigation cloud is in because like when you say cloud-based i think of like you know, like servers or something, but I'm guessing yeah, we not. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. But I was just like to offer my, the first yeah, things yeah. that come to my mind, which are almost always wrong anyway. <laughs> they way. are almost always wrong, but I love, I love the direction that your wrongness is in. Mm -hmm. yeah. If that makes sense. Like you always go in an interesting direction. I love it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we've got some like 60s spacecraft that there was some clever thing where they were communicating either with an aircraft or another spacecraft in some very primitive way. And that was, that's, that's where my brain's going. <laughs> mm -hmm. So next week in 1962, cloud-based navigation. I'm not sure as always, but if anyone thinks that they are, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yep. And a quick reminder, you can email us, you can message us on Reddit, but you're not guaranteed to be in the show unless you tweet, you use the hashtag, and your uh, account is public. Hashtags don't work in private messages. So, but you're, I mean, we're, we'll take them anyway. It's just if my if this, then that bot doesn't mm -hmm. see it, I don't see it.
Starhopper has completed its test flight, its 150-meter-ish test flight. That was cool to watch. I saw the video. I didn't see it till, I think, well, at some point later in the day, but I didn't watch it live. It happened yeah. while I was napping, and I woke up to the YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. I managed to watch the abort live. Uh, everything was timed oh. perfectly. I was all happy. I'm sitting down, put my feet up, just got home from work, and then, yeah. It's like, damn it. <laughs> so I guess we should talk about what happened, which I think I feel like it was fairly... I mean, things went more or less according to plan, so there's not much to talk about there, but there is other stuff to talk about, which I guess we'll get to in a second. But uh, yeah, so this rose to about 150 meters, but I don't know if that's official, right? Because uh, I don't know if there's any word on exactly what the altitude was. Yeah, and, right, right. and I've seen a couple of news outlets actually hedge their bets by saying it was planned to reach 150 meters. So yeah, that's it's interesting that you bring that up. Wasn't the idea that it was going to try to get to 200 meters, but then the FAA was like, we'll let you get up to 150. <laughs> oh, okay. And, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's what happened because there was that like delay um, mm -hmm. between when they first wanted to do it. Not not the like one day uh, abort, but the like by a few weeks. Actually, I think it might have been by several months, right? Because wasn't this supposed to happen back in April, maybe May? But there was a problem with I think the amount of insurance that SpaceX needed to purchase for this because it's so close to you know a residential neighborhood <laughs> that it was something like they needed like a hundred million dollars or something like like, like a lot of money uh -huh. and i don't know if and, and i don't know if that's what they need to be insured for or if that's how much they pay in insurance oh which... that's that's an insurance amount that's not an insurance payment are you kidding me okay well, that's what that's know. what banks pay to insure like the u.s economy right. okay okay cool <laughs> yeah i'm seeing it they went from three million of liability to a hundred million so yikes <laughs> yeah so what we were able to see is uh we saw the ascent, a slight rotation, which I didn't see. I mean, I saw that more so when it was coming back down, it looked like, or maybe translating. Not as much on ascent, but again, I'm not good at, at you know, observing these minute things. I tend to miss them. And then it touched down and it had a uh, crush core in, in its feet. And those, I guess, worked, but they came off uh, because they were definitely necessary. So you could huh. see like a shoe sort of like sitting right there on the pad next to the, one of the legs, like it just completely came off. Huh. It might not have been a perfect landing although it is you know still fully intact yeah so that's heck good. that's the least important thing we're, we're okay yeah. <laughs> one cool thing upon landing is that uh, apparently the thing lost a copv tank which i don't know where that came from i have some speculations but there's there was just too much of a cloud but i guess we shouldn't be surprised because this is a spacex vehicle and uh they have their <laughs> i don't know what the deal is with spacex and pressure vessels but <laughs> They lost another one, so that kind of went flying away from uh, the landing site. And I guess it's one of those that's sitting on the very top, the dome of the structure. I don't know how many there are, but if we're looking at one... There's a couple, at least four. Okay, because I see at least three at the angle that I'm looking at after touchdown. So maybe there... I mean, I guess it would have to have been four, <laughs> mm -hmm. a minimum. And if I saw this right, you with the way it was oriented, you couldn't see this in SpaceX's feed because it was away from the camera. But Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, right, his his feed was looking at a different angle. SpaceX's, it hopped from right to left. Tim Dodd's, it hopped from towards to away. And so when it... And so I... That's why I, you know, I saw all this COPV talk and I'm like, I stared at the SpaceX video. I'm like, all right, Let's just admit it, Dennis. You're terrible at this. Just, I'm not very observant. <laughs> I just know that in general. But then I realized that, yeah, you really had to look at Tim Dodd's footage or maybe other people that also, you know, yeah. looked at it at that angle. I mean, it's 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 straight Kerbal where it's still it's it's uh, spinning. Well, the fact that those things the are basically zip tied on top is very Kerbal. 
Um, <laughs> they they really nailed the aesthetic. Yeah, they did. I mean, I've seen it flying away, but I couldn't see it flying away from the vehicle because you know there was that huge cloud in the way. So yeah. right, because the vehicle's yeah, it's already kind of it's it's far away from the vehicle. So it happens yeah, on landing. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, if yeah, if you go to his video, he has in the description. It's like at ten minutes or something when he zooms in and slows it. Down. Oh gosh. Look at it go. Oh. Yep. <laughs> That's some good propulsive venting there. Yeah. That thing really, really has some momentum changes or some uh, rotation changes. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, it looks like it's venting from both sides, right? Like yeah. it's mm -hmm. kind of like, like a yeah, little Yeah. I mean, you've got a pipe, a filler pipe and a feeder pipe to, to feed to the engine. Oh, man. That explains uh, 100 million liability. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> freaking copy kind of flying at you <laughs> you would think that once it's landed you're safe but no even then you could have something mm. shoot off and mm -hmm. i guess the last thing we should talk about is uh, the confusion as to the exhaust on this raptor engine because it seems to change color as it's landing so what is that all about because i'm a little bit confused on you know the chemistry and what to expect because i don't know much about methalox engines because they're it's not exactly something that's ever been flown on you know an engine this large at least well so two things are happening here on liftoff, you can see there are shot cones in the exhaust plume, um, which indicates that the exhaust is underexpanded, right? That means that the mm -hmm. atmosphere is pressing in and constraining uh, that mm -hmm. exhaust plume, as opposed to, you know, if it was in space, um, it would be really, really spread out. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, those shock plumes are because the, the engine bell is slightly underexpanded, which means that it's optimized for a higher altitude. Saying optimized is probably a dangerous word because uh, um, there, there are probably some, or th there are, uh, I believe, thrust benefits to being underexpanded uh, in dense atmospheres. Anyway, but it's, it's at full throttle and it's got this nice uh, bluish gold exhaust plume. And then the, the flames that are hitting the ground and getting bounced off to the sides are yellow, right? And they're bright yellow. So, so that yellowness is probably coming from carbon burning in the, the dust or, or the launch pad. Um, bits are coming off um, and burning and changing the color of that flame. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is when it lands, the entire plume goes yellow right before landing. Mm -hmm. And the best explanation I've heard is that uh, they throttle down. And not only are they throttling down, um, but they're changing the fuel ratio to be fuel rich um, because you get e efficiency boosts from being fuel rich in a methylox engine. Uh, my expectation was that there was a throttle down and just because it wasn't overexpanded, uh, it, it could glow brighter. And so it looked like it was a different color um, just due to the camera. But it, it sounds like it's more likely to be extra unburned carbon from the methane. Alternatively, uh, when they throttle down, maybe... Uh, they lose um, some of the some of the nice flow characteristics, and they start burning away part of the combustion chamber or part of the nozzle, uh, mm -hmm. and pick up uh, a little bit of uh, of carbon from the engine itself. Yeah, Sa Sam saying that that mixture sounds the best to him as well, and he actually posted a photo um, to uh, one of Landspace's engine tests 
which is a, a Methlox engine that also burns the, the exact same color of yellow. Mm-hmm. And that seemed reasonable to me, but I was hearing that that's not supposed to happen if you change the mixture ratio, which, you know, makes sense that it would, which is kind of what confused me. Because if you change the, like, like if you change the fuel mixture, right, that mm-hmm. in addition to other things, I mean, that changes or it's supposed to change the temperature because obviously you're mm-hmm. not burning, you know, like the stoichiometric rate. So yeah, there's, it, there's more mass to carry away the same amount of right. So that makes perfect sense. But I was just hearing that, oh, no, that couldn't explain this, but I didn't know why. I thought, I think it explains it pretty well. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, I could be wrong, but I I would be kind of surprised. Plus, you can see, like, as it descends, you can see for just like a split second, it actually does turn yellow just for a second. It almost looks like something did come loose in the exhaust, and there's just this little yellow streak. And then it goes back to blue, and then it turns to a solid yellow color. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that maybe there was some carbon that came loose, but they were probably in, in the process of changing the fuel mixture. And so you can see a little bit of instability there at first before it goes completely yellow. Yeah, I see actually two little flashes if you go back yeah. even further. There's a, but yeah, both during descent. Yeah, and they, oh, there's actually, there's actually probably three little flashes. There's one, and then one, then one. Yeah, and the other thing is when the, when the flame mm. starts going yellow, it starts going yellow at the bottom of the flame and then works its way right. up and then gets really bright. So, yeah, may, maybe what's happening is as it's entering this dust cloud, the dust is just getting entrained into the plume. And that way the engine isn't making, actually, no. That's what I believe. Okay. Looking at it, you can see it getting into the dust cloud just as it starts going yellow. It starts low and then rises up as uh, the clouds rise and the vehicle drops. I That's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's what I think is happening here. Could it not also be the change in pressure of the exhaust? Because if you're towards the nozzle, you have, you know, a different pressure than like further down. So a change in pressure would cause a change in temperature, which would cause a change in what you see, I would think. Like if you look at the test stand footage of Land Spaces engine, like yeah. that's not actually like going anywhere, but you can see how it's blue towards the nozzle and then yellow yeah, towards so you, the middle. So you're saying as it throttles down, it goes from just barely being cool enough at the bottom to go yellow right. to slowly that coolness traveling. Yeah, that that's a possibility. But I mean, looking at the dust, I, I bet you it's the dust getting caught up in that in that airflow mm-hmm. stream that's what i think it is yep it's an interesting phenomenon that uh, seemed to have gotten gotten people talking i think that's mostly just because you know this is a methylox engine and we're getting to see one in action and i think that's really cool like yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely interested to see how these things work well this I, this is only the second one to like have flown right i mean that we they've tested and fired methylox engines before but have they i think raptor is the first thing to actually fly mm-hmm. something yep as far as one is this big yeah I, th- I think it's the very first so where is blue origin right so that's kind of what i'm wondering <laughs> still haven't seen yeah, yeah. i'd like blue to see their methylox too right? blue origin does not care about spacex they're just they're going to do what works for them uh it really helps to be funded by your boss you know they're they're gonna they're gonna hit the mile markers that they want to hit when they want to hit them at some point during my lifetime that'd be great i'm just teasing <laughs> yeah uh, no uh, I, I agree <laughs> I agree. I mean, they, they should be doing people uh, pretty soon. You mean with the suborbital yeah. mm-hmm. rocket? Yes, okay. yes, yes. But I was talking about Nick I Glenn. I, ju- I jumped tracks. 
I went from New Glenn to Milestones to New Shepard. Uh, so shortly after this, there was a Twitter response from Elon Musk to a follower asking to go back to the 12-meter diameter starship. And he said, well, actually, we'll probably go to an 18-meter diameter starship, which, I mean, there's no timeline on that, obviously, but that's just something that he's you know, throughout there. So who knows how much you right. should invest in that comment. But right. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to say, but I, it, it, that's, that's cool, but that's bigger than I, I mean, geez. It, in fact, I think the speculation is that it would take something like over a hundred Raptor engines to get that thing off the ground. So, oh wow, that is huge. Can you imagine something like that lifting off from earth somehow from somewhere? I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what kind of a special uh, launch pad you would need. In that same Twitter thread, he had said that they're aiming for a 20-kilometer flight in October and attempt at orbit shortly after that. And then there will be an update on Starship on September 28th, which is uh, the anniversary of SpaceX reaching orbit. So that's pretty cool, and I don't know mm -hmm. what to expect. And then by that time, Starship Mark 1 should be fully assembled. I don't know. So I think that pretty much everything said there is probably going to get pushed back, except for the fact that there's going to be an update on September 28th. But doing a 20-kilometer flight by October, I mean, maybe. Well, by, by the end of October is what it sounds like. So the tweet is 20 kilometers in October and then orbit attempt shortly thereafter. Whew, that's, uh, that's ambitious. That's, yeah. I, I'm going to say right now that's not going to happen that soon. But how cool is it that they're thinking about it? Mm -hmm. Right. Like already, that's cool. I mean, I think if anybody could do it, it would probably be them. If anybody will eventually do it, it's definitely SpaceX. It's just that doing it in the time... Uh, specified there probably not because that is most definitely elon time that's uh yeah let's translate now to another story just a quick little update on the insight lander so we had Ooh. mentioned this a couple months ago and uh, i think that i had specifically talked about its mole problem uh not as in the critter but the little probe that is meant to bore down into the martian surface some 12 meters i don't remember mm. now yeah but it's like a fairly good distance deep. 16 feet so five meters okay okay 16 okay. feet well that's i was gonna that's... say 15 meters is really long although five meters is very five meters is very too. long yeah yeah mm -hmm. the mole got stuck or it didn't get too far down into the surface. And that was because there was a little crater that it had created essentially around itself. And they weren't sure what was going on there, but they have been able to determine that this was because of a twist in the probe's ribbon cable. So if, if you have like, uh, you know, a little cable that's attached to that probe. Well, the the twist, yeah, the, the twist is a symptom, not a cause. Right, it's mm. it's showing that it was spinning around in this hole without enough traction. Yeah, it was doing the the probe equivalent of spinning its wheels, and kind of, so although <laughs> almost and now it doesn't have yeah. the friction on its sides to be able to kind of get yeah. it to self hammer. And and we should also point out, right? It was it was like a month ago. The real big thing was they discovered the problem really early on. I I, I almost want to say back in like February this year, like at the beginning of the year, and they tried to just like just plow through it you know let's just keep hammering 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 mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. after a whole bunch of like you know troubleshooting they're like all right we're gonna have to move the housing around the probe and yeah. so that was kind of the big mm -hmm. development yeah yeah a month or so ago and sure enough there's yeah this big hole in there and the probe is only halfway in right mm -hmm. yep. so it is yeah. that's it's even worse than um, so, so the PI described what they're trying to hammer through as Duracrust, mm. um, or mechanically strong regolith, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And apparently mm. they're expecting it to only be like 10 centimeters thick. I wonder if they might even try digging through it and then putting the probe 
in a dug hole. I don't know. That seems kind of kind of. Unfortunately, drastic. they can't take the probe out. Like they would never be able to reinsert it. Oh, they just can't. The way they it was can't designed. Just wind it back up. I see. Nah. So right now they're trying to figure out how to correct this problem. And now is a good time because Mars and Earth are in solar conjunction. So you have Mars on the other side of the sun. So I guess you know they can't do much, or anyone can who has stuff on Mars right now. So I guess this is like the little break that you can take when mm-hmm. you are working on anything uh, that involves hardware on Mars. So I guess in this downtime, they're trying to come up with solutions. And one solution they came up with was one that that I had suggested myself. And I guess it was just, you know, kind of like a joke, but maybe just use that arm to push the probe down, um, Mm -hmm. which is risky because as you had mentioned, Ben, it has that little cable at the end of it and you don't want to snap it off, break it. So how are you going to apply pressure to it? I guess you need to be very precise in your movement there and maybe just hit the end of it, but not the cable itself. You wouldn't only have to be precise in your initial placement but you'd have to be able to apply force without slipping mm-hmm. uh, and breaking mm-hmm. those solder joints. Very tricky, but better that than might what, be what they have. Current status, yeah, exactly. And th- this is why teleoperations are so much fun. You never, you never know what a solution might look like. Mm. And I'm just saying, the uh, should also be clear. So this is right, the HP cubes. So the um, size, the seismometer, is still running wonderfully the other main science experiment. So it's yeah. not like, oh God, NASA sent this thing here and it's a total waste. Nah. It's not like that. It's still doing great seismology the first time we're ever directly measuring Mars quakes. I just, I love the way that Mars regolith compresses like wheel tracks and stuff. It looks like wet (laughs) sand almost, even though it's very, very dry. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just looked like, just like dirt to me or sand. It's incredibly fine. I mean, it just, Mm -hmm. very powder. Can you imagine like getting it in your gums and like, Oh, it. No, Oof. apparently it's pretty bad for you. Like you wouldn't oh, want yeah. that to happen. You could, no, no. Uh, lunar regolith will cause cancer. Yeah. If it gets in your lungs. Mm. Yeah. It's basically a giant ball of asbestos is what yeah, you're walking exactly. on. Exactly. Let's do three short and sweets. Ben, you got the first one. And what is that? The completed Rosalind Franklin rover displayed by Airbus engineers. So after a decade of development and nine months of actual fabrication, ESA's Rosalind Franklin rover has now been built. The 300 kilogram Mars rover will be sent to an Airbus facility in Toulouse, France for checks related to surviving the interplanetary trip. Meanwhile, Talas Alenia engineers in Turin, Italy are preparing fit checks with the German built spacecraft cruise system and Russian built descent module. Final integration, including the radioisotope thermal heaters, will take place in Cannes prior to launch from Baikonur in April 2020. So more vehicles being completed. Uh, we've got the Mars 2020 helicopter has officially been integrated into the rover. While NASA engineers are nearing completion of their Mars 2020 rover, the vehicle was flipped upside down to install the Mars helicopter scout, a 1.8 kilogram twin rotor chopper that would be the first to fly on another world. A shield is currently being fitted around the helicopter to protect from debris kicked up by the rockets during landing. With no scientific instruments other than a camera, Scout is a demonstrator for non-terrestrial flight, and if successful, may lead to helicopters becoming a regular feature of future Mars missions. Lastly, finally, JWST has now been physically assembled. Last September, the spacecraft and telescope portions of the James Webb Space Telescope were linked together using temporary 
wiring for testing. Last week at Northrop Grumman's facilities in California, the two portions have been fully mechanically integrated for the first time. The next step for the now-assembled space observatory is to connect the halves electrically and perform testing, as well as deploy the five-layered sun shield. The spacecraft is slated to launch in 2021, so we're getting even closer. Yeah, that's a good milestone. <laughs> With that, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch. It's uh, not There's not much coming up this month, but we have one thing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> at least uh, for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So yeah, that'll be on uh, September 10th. Uh, JAXA will be launching the H2B 304 or Konotori 8, which also is called the HTV 8 or H2 transfer vehicle. Uh, this will be uh, uh, September 10th at 2133 uh, UTC, instantaneous window, launching out of Tanegashima, Japan. And it's a uncrewed cargo resupply mission as usual to the ISS. Yep. All right. Well, that is your upcoming space flight event. Maybe the only one for a couple <laughs> weeks after that, actually. And with that one upcoming space flight event, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burdens on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.